out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good afternoon. Day 24 of 100 Days of Calling. Boy, it is confirmed. I am registered to vote in Travis County. And early voting takes place four days from now through the f- November 4th. So, there it is. So, that's what's up. And I just wanted to indicate that there's been a lot of activity on Twitter today, as there always is. But one of the more interesting things that I've seen kind of roll out is uh, Emmy-winning producer James Gordon Meek had his home raided by the FBI and his colleagues say they haven't seen him since. So that was two days ago. It looks like the FBI stole... Um, uh, they stole Mr. Mr. Meeks. Or Mr. Meek. I just want to indicate that this was a Rolling Stone story from a couple of days ago. Okay. Um, he had been doing some national security investigative journalism and was responding to a former CIA agent Mark Polymeropoulos uh, take that the Ukrainian military with assistance from the US was thriving against Russian forces Mr. Polymeropoulos tweets filled with acronyms indecipherable to the layperson a bunch of alphabet soup was uh, itself a reply to the missive from Washington Post, Pentagon reporter Dan Lamoth, who noted the wealth of information that the U.S. military had gathered about Russian ops by observing their combat strategy in real time. It is worth saying during this uh, during this podcast that someone by the name of Douglas Wilbur reached out to me. I don't know if it's the same Douglas Wilbur, but there is a Douglas Wilbur who is at the United... Where is he? He is, uh, he works for, um, Russian disinformation research. Let's put it this way. So let me just pull it up. I don't know if it's the same one. But if it is, I'm kind of chiming in on other things that have been happening. Okay, so this is a guy who's a who's a researcher. He is a in the area of public relations, strategic communications, conflict propaganda, information warfare, and veterans issues. So this guy has got 15 plus scholarly publications in peer-reviewed journals, and his main thing is Russian disinformation, counter-propaganda, information warfare, all this other stuff. And someone by the name of Douglas Wilbur reached out to me with a Fox.com address and wanted me to comment on the use of the website. And I'm not really sure what to make of it, because what sits in front of me is a very um, militaristic student who's probably going to sit there and question me for 45 minutes about Russian disinformation, which, you know, I don't know anything about. I'll admit it, I'll just admit it here, I don't know anything about Russian disinformation except for that 
I'll be guilty of spreading it if the wrong political operative decides that I'm bad. So, um, so let's see here. I'm going to try to go ahead with what I'm going to say. At least it's worth saying. I invited all the people. As many people as I possibly can. Got some new followers. It's pretty cool. Um, I will also send a note about the room. Here it is. Live now. For people who want to come on. Let's see here. There we go. Alright, so I'm just going to go ahead and move this into the reading. Um, I still think it's pretty weird that anyone who has been doing a nominal investigative research discussion on anything going on with Ukraine would be suddenly disappeared by the clandestine state who is a journalist. That's always a flagged issue. So I'll read just a little bit more about this this James Gordon Meek fellow from ABC who's suddenly been disappeared by the, the Homeland Security Committee people. So the interchange illustrated the interplay between the national security community and those who cover it. And no one straddled both worlds like, quite like Meek, an Emmy-winning deep-dive journalist who also was a former senior counterterrorism advisor and investigator for the House Homeland Security Committee. To his detractors with the ABC, Meek was something of a military fanboy, but his track record of exclusives was undeniable. Breaking news of foiled terrorist plots in New York City and the Army's cover-up of the fratricidal death of PFC Dave Sherritt II in Iraq, a bombshell that earned Meek a face-to-face -face meeting with President Obama. With nine years at ABC under his belt, a buzzy Hulu documentary poised for Emmy attention and an upcoming book on the military's chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, the 52-year-old bear of a man seemed to be at the height of his powers and the pinnacle of his profession. The first thing Meek's neighbor, John Antonelli, noticed that morning was the black utility vehicle with blacked-out windows blocking traffic in both directions on Columbia Pike. It was just before dawn on the brisk April day, and self-described police vehicle historian Antonelli was about to grab a coffee at a Starbucks before embarking on his daily three-mile walk. He inched closer to get a better vantage when he saw an olive green Lenko Bearcat G2, an armored tactical vehicle often employed by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, among other law enforcement agencies, a few Arlington County cruisers surrounded the jaw-dropping scene, but all of their all of the other vehicles were unmarked, including the Bearcat. Antonelli counted at least ten heavily armed personnel in the group. None bore anything identifying with which agency was conducting the raid. After just ten minutes, the operation inside Siena Park apartment complex, a six-story upscale building for TC professionals. With rents fetching between two grand and three thousand a month was over. They didn't stick around. They took off pretty quickly and headed west on Columbia Pike towards Fairfax County. Antonelli recalls most people seeing that green vehicle would think it's some sort of tank, uh, but they knew it was a Lenko Bearcat. You know, I guess it doesn't make that much of a difference. That vehicle is designed to be jumped on or out of so that they can do a raid in that kind of time. It can return fire if it's being fired upon. Whoa! So multiple sources familiar with the matter say that Meek was the target of an FBI raid at the Siena Park Apartments where he had been living on the top floor for more than a decade. 
An FBI representative told Rolling Stone its agents were present on the morning of April 27th at the 2300 block of Columbia Pike, Arlington, Virginia, conducting a court-authorized law enforcement activity. The FBI cannot comment further due to an ongoing investigation. Mm. So that's what's up. James Gordon Meek is probably in the bowels of the FBI complex. Say a little prayer for the man because he is the press. And I don't know what he could have done to get himself in that spot. But I do know we've got too much, too much security, too much security theater, too much abuse of security privileges. I'll just go right there. So I am going to begin the reading. So I think today we're going to probably wrap up chapter 6. This is the trial of Julian Assange, a story of persecution. Um, this is the anatomy of a persecution. So I'll resume here. Necessary changes to S's interview. On the same Monday, the 23rd, Inspector Ermeli Kranz wants to edit her summary of S's interview. Kranz had written the summary with the help of text creation program the text creation program in the police's own Durtva system immediately after the rather abrupt end of S's interview on the Friday evening. But when she returned to the office after the weekend, the system denied her access to her own summary. Inspector Gellin provides the explanation the same morning at 10.26 a.m. in an email to Chief Prosecutor Finney. Hello, Eva. I have been given the honor of handling this case. Journalists are calling from all corners of the world. I have extended an access protection in Durtiva. I need a secrecy stamp on the case. Everyone wants the police report. Apparently, Gillen's first official act after taking over the preliminary investigation against Assange had been to restrict internal access in the system and, curiously, to exclude crimes. At 4.28 that afternoon, a redacted copy of S's original interview summary is faxed to a Swedish press contact, reportedly in rather prompt response to a Freedom of Information request. On that fax copy, the decisive passages describing the alleged sexual misconduct have been redacted. The original unredacted version appears to have been eliminated from the official investigative case documents archived by the authorities and presumably no longer exist. On the next day, 24th of August, Inspector Gellin logs the following memo. Spoke with Eva Finney. She does not believe it is rape. Inform her that I do not agree, but that it is her case. She told me not to take action until she has read through the case documents. Interview of injured, part, injured party to Clay's Borgstrom. So, according to In Inspector Gellin's diary, Borgstrom obtains a copy of S's original interview by the latest on 24 August, something Assange's lawyer will be denied for months to come, and also meets personally with two women. Borgstrom's intention is clear. He does not want to accept the impending closure of the preliminary investigation in the case of S, and intends to appeal Finney's decision to the next hierarchical level. The Director of Public Prosecution, but this requires strong arguments. 
Given the worldwide media attention and the public scrutiny of her handling of the case, Finney would have examined the material particularly carefully before canceling the arrest warrant and then officially dropping the entire case of S for lack of evidence of any criminal conduct. Had Finney harbored even the slightest doubt, she might still have dropped the arrest warrant, but would certainly have allowed the preliminary investigation to continue for a few days, at least for a less serious offense, until Assange could be formally interviewed. As explained by Kjellstrand on Sunday, 22nd August, in an interview with Expressen, Swedish prosecutors do not normally reverse each other's decisions ex except on the basis of new facts. Borgstrom's complaint against Finney's decision will be addressed to the competent higher authority. Director of Public Prosecution Marianne Nye in Gothenburg, a personal friend of Borgstrom's. When Bo Borgstrom receives the original interview with S, he knows that it had not been read and approved by S, and can still be amended or corrected. Inspector Kranz, who is tasked with the editing of the text of S's interview, will be on uh, August 25th appear on Facebook describing the discontinuation of that case by the chief prosecutor Eva Finney as a scandal and expressing her delight that our dear eminent and highly competent Claes Borgstrom will hopefully bring some order. Inspector Gillen, her superior, has also made clear in his diary that he disagrees with Finney's decision. It is against this background that the following email exchange between Inspector Gellin and Kranz takes place from 23rd of August to 26th of August, and for which the Swedish authorities have refused to provide any explanation. On 23rd of August, at 8.27, Kranz writes, Hello, I hope I have done it right now, and the document reaches you as it should. Please send me a confirmation regarding the verbal report to the prosecutor. I only know that it was made by Linda Voskren, by phone sometime during the interview, i.e. the original police report, to Prosecutor Kjellstrand on the afternoon of 20 August while S. was being interviewed by Kranz. What was reported is unknown to me, as Waskren did not want to communicate with me. There was no opportunity to discuss the crime classification with the prosecutor, but I was told that it should be classified as rape on the instructions of the prosecutor. So why didn't Waskren want to communicate with Krantz? Why was Krantz excluded from the investigation of this case, despite the fact that she was the only officer who had actually spoken with S in detail and had heard the precise words of her original statement? Despite? Or perhaps rather because of it? It is not until only one day later at 9.33 a.m. that Gellin responds, Good morning, Irmele. Proceed as follows. Copy into this interview and sign the interview. It would look strange if I signed it. I attached the old interview. Kranz, an experienced police officer, after all, is at a loss. At 1.38 p.m., she replies, I may be dim, but I don't really understand what you mean. Gillen replies just six minutes later. Create a new interview? Add the text and assign the interview to the case file? Sign the interview to... Kranz's confusion persists. Sure, but there are two interviews. But only one formal interview has been conducted, by me anyway. So where does the second interview go? 
If everything is to be done correctly, I suppose I must make the changes to, in the ori original interview and then sign it. At the risk of appearing to be difficult, I do not want an unsigned document with my name on it circulating in Dertuva space, especially not now that the matter has evolved this way. It is not until two days later, on Thursday, 26 August at 12.30 p.m., after an email exchange with Clay's Borgstrom, that Gellin concludes his correspondence with Kranz with the assurance, yes, but I'll write a memo about it. Two hours later, Kranz generates S's new interview in the Duterva system, replacing the original document. The next day, on 27 August, Borgstrom will join this revised interview to a complaint submitted to prosecutor, sorry, prosecutor Marion Nye, requesting the case of S to be reopened and the allegations in the case of A to be extended. While the correspondence between Gellin and Kranz may be remaining cryptic to outsiders, there can be no doubt that Gellin asked Kranz to do something very unusual, if not suspicious. Kranz, whose access to the original interview had been blocked by Gellin, appears to be confused, reluctant, and nervous about not acting correctly. This feeling does not seem to have lessened even several days after Kranz had completed her task, when the preliminary investigation in S's case was reopened on 1 September, thus making it likely that S's interview will be subjected to judicial review. Kranz makes sure to attach a memo to the interview at 4.45 p.m. The memo explains that on Gellin's instructions, a new interview with the necessary changes was created on 26 August 2010 at 2.43 p.m. and that this timestamp was automatically adopted by the system as the beginning of the interview, although it had actually been conducted on 20 August between 4.21 and 6.40 p.m. What changes exactly were made and, and why were they necessary cannot be determined with certainty since the original interview had been heavily redacted. In any case, it cannot have been a matter of pure spelling corrections, which would never have triggered, triggered such an extensive correspondence and so much discomfort. When one compares the original but redacted interview with the revised but unredacted version, both of which which were printed in the same font and format, it is quite evident that the text has become slightly longer. Depending on whether the black censorship bars extend beyond the text lines printed underneath or reflect their exact length, a total of between one and three lines of text appears to have been inserted in the paragraph describing the alleged sexual misconduct. Where did these necessary changes come from? S had not been consulted. No tape recording had been made of her statement, and no other officer had witnessed the interview. Moreover, six days after the interview, too much time had already passed for reliable corrections to be made, based on Inspector Cran's personal recollection. Why did Gellin's request make Cran so nervous? Had some, someone perhaps suggested alternative wording that would increase the chances of the case being reopened? To encourage a different appreciation of the case by the Director of Public Prosecution, it would, not, it would not be necessary to substantially change the entire story. Slight adjustments in the wording could be enough. Let us remember that, according to the Swedish Criminal Code in force at the time, the alleged conduct of Assange could only be constituate, sorry, constituate rape if, at least at the beginning of the sexual act, S had been asleep and... 
therefore incapable of giving free and full consent of unprotected sexual intercourse. Thus, whether S's interview described her state at the time as being asleep, half asleep, or sleepy, and whether it said that Assange initiated, attempted, or had already penetrated S at the relevant moment are not semantic quibbles, but could have tipped the scales so as to justify, or not, resuscitating the rape allegation against Assange. Given that the original text of S's interview was not transcribed verbatim from a tape recording, but had been summarized in Kranz's own words, a subsequent manipulation cannot be ruled out. As long as the Swedish authorities are allowed to hide behind a convenient veil of secrecy, the truth about this dubious episode may never come to light. Shadowboxing around condoms and DNA analysis. In parallel, a bizarre sideshow arises in connection with the condoms used by Assange, with the two women and their suitability as evidence to substantiate the rape allegations against him. During her initial phone interview on 21 August, when asked by Inspector Sarah Wennerblom, A says that she believes that she still possesses the condom used by Assange during sexual intercourse with her eight days earlier. A acknowledges that she not has not verified whether it is damaged at all, but promises to check. She also says that she probably still has the unwashed bed sheets upon which Assange's sperm might be found. On the same day, at 6.21 p.m., Bennerblom personally looks, knocks on A's front door and takes the following items into police custody. A sheet, cotton blue, taken from the laundry basket, exhibit 2010-201-BG-20840-1, as well as a condom, torn, found in the waste paper basket and put in a box. Exhibit 2010-0201-BG-20840-2. S takes even more time and waits a full 16 days from the date of the alleged rape before handing over to Inspector Gellin. During her second interview on 2 September, a torn piece of condom, which she says to have found under her bed. According to her initial interview 12 days earlier, however, she had returned home to clean up and wash everything immediately after Assange had left. She mentioned the presence of semen on the bedsheets, but at least according to the summary written by Inspector Kranz, does not appear to have found the piece of condom at that time. According to a memo written by Gellin, another six weeks later, on 20 October 2010, S. allegedly had not noticed in the darkness that a condom had been damaged, but she heard a sound as if it were pulling a balloon when he put the condom on. It is striking to see how the stories of A and S begin to converge over time. In the original interview, only A had spoken of a torn condom and strange sounds of snapping latex. Now, with the prosecution authority running out of promising investigative steps to be taken in support of their allegation against Assange, the same elements suddenly start appearing in the case of S as well. Such evidentiary, sorry, such evidentiary harmonization is a form of confirmation bias resulting from deliberate or inadvertent suggestive questioning or from mutual witness influence. It is quite common in investigations where the same officials are tasked with interviewing several witnesses and tend to use leading questions to elicit 
the elements they are looking for. In the present case, it suggests that an attempt by the authorities to strengthen the evidentiary value of the two interviews by harmonizing some of their components. Such manipulative methods of questioning had reportedly been used extensively during the police investigation of Bergwall slash Quick case in order to gloss over serious evidential contradictions and confirm the misdirected mass murder narrative favored by the authorities. On 24th of August, Chief Prosecutor Finney requests a forensic examination of the condom submitted by A with a view to determining how it had been damaged. Inspector Gellin hands over the condom over to the technical service of the police. The service is unable to answer the question and passes the task on to the State Forensic Laboratory, SKL. The condom fragment submitted to S by S is likewise handed over to the laboratory to determine how exactly it was damaged. In its report of 25 October 2010, SKL offers the initial results of its analysis. At the same time, it issues an express disclaimer clarifying that it lacks the accreditation required under the industry standard ISO IEC 17025 for investigating the actual question before it, namely the cause of the damage done to the latex material of the condoms. As the laboratory will confirm in an extensive letter to the police on 20 June 2012, it essentially investigated a matter for which it lacked the required standard procedures and specialized expertise. Instead, the laboratory staff intentionally damaged the condom submitted by A with a knife, with scissors, and by ripping off its lower part. When comparing the three types of damage under the microscope, the one resulting from ripping off part of the condom showed the greatest similarity with the pre-existing damage. The same opinion was reached about the condom fragments submitted by S. The official conclusion was that, in both cases, the observed damage had been caused by the condom being ripped. Unbelievable. Evidence tampering. And the probability level for this hypothesis was said to be plus two, which means that there is a small probability that the laboratory's conclusions are wrong. Okay, on the scale of forensic probative value, this is situated at the lower medium level of strength, one level above mere circumstantial evidence, one, and two levels below evidence capable of excluding other hypotheses, plus four. As would be expected, however, the laboratory was unable to determine who had ripped the condoms at what point in time and whether the damage had been caused deliberately or accidentally. Equally unsurprisingly, on the condom fragment provided by, the, by S, the laboratory found S's DNA as well as that of a man on the condom. Although the authorities continue to keep the identity of this man secret, it can reasonably be assumed to be Assange. After all, neither Assange nor F had disputed that they had repeatedly and voluntarily engaged in sexual intercourse during which condoms had been used. Both also agree that during their last sexual intercourse, which gave rise to the rape allegation, Assange did not wear a condom from the beginning, so... Whatever had happened to the condom fragment submitted by S 
It was entirely irrelevant to the rape allegation made by made against Assange. In the case of S, the only question was to be investigated was whether their unprotected intercourse was initiated by Assange while S was helpless due to sleep, a question which even the best forensic expert could not be expected to answer. The laboratory had significantly more trouble finding DNA on the condom submitted by A. According to the inspector, Gellin's memo of 20 October 2010, the laboratory initially could not detect any DNA whatsoever. Eight days later, on 28th of October, Gellin corrects himself in another much more elaborate memo. He had now had the opportunity to discuss the results of the DNA analysis with SKL. The forensic scientist had explained that it was not correct to state that no DNA had been found on A's condom because something had been seen, but it had not been able to interpret it. Gellin goes on to list a number of possible reasons for these interpretive difficulties which, according to the scientist, included interference with an analysis due to contamination, etc., small amount of DNA, people leaving very amounts of DNA substrate, the material under examination having been washed, dried, other or otherwise affected after it was used. Gellin made sure to mention that these were just some examples and other factors could have affected the result in view of the nature of the item here, a condom that allegedly had been worn and torn during intercourse. These explanations seem rather far-fetched and reveal preferences that can hardly be reconciled with objective fact-finding. In any case, as Gellin noted, the laboratory decided to carry out an additional more refined DNA analysis which would take another two weeks to complete. The methodology to be followed was the highly complex low copy number procedure which can be applied to extremely small trace elements and incomplete DNA fragments but which often produces much less reliable results and is therefore not accepted as forensic evidence in the courts of most states. Projected two weeks turn into more than eight months before the laboratory finally renders its final report on the 15th of July of 2011. Ooh, that's a long time. The report states that on one side of the condom, DNA had been detected that could be matched to a person. The next three explanatory lines are crossed out with thick censoring pen and followed by the indicated probability level of plus two. Again, one level above circumstantial evidence, plus one, and two levels below evidence capable of excluding other hypotheses plus four. In any case, much weaker than a standard DNA analysis where probative values of 99.999% and above are quite common. Before getting carried away with the forensic technicalities, however, let us pause for a moment and use our common sense. In the cases of both A and S, it is worth asking exactly what factual allegations or circumstances these DNA analyses were supposed to prove. Just as in the case of S, Assange acknowledged that sexual intercourse with A had occurred and that a condom had been used. He only denied having ripped the condom intentionally. Therefore, even a perfectly reliable DNA matched based on abundant DNA substrate, which would have to be expected on a used condom, 
would prove that A had actually submitted the condom that had been used together with Assange. Whether the condom was torn intentionally or accidentally, by whom and what time, are questions that defy the forensic determination, certainly within the parameters of the given circumstances. In this respect, Assange claims that he was not even aware that the condom had been damaged, whereas A is sure that he ripped it on purpose. A acknowledges, however, that this is a mere assumption and that she did not see him destroy the condom. Even during her police interview one week later, she still does not know whether the condom is damaged at all. Although she still has it in her possession, it is quite clear that until her police interview on 21 of August, neither Assange nor A seem to have been sufficiently preoccupied with this question to at least verify whether the condom, which for a whole week lay in the trash can of the apartment where they were staying together, was damaged or not. The police also tasked the laboratory with examining the stain on A's bedsheet for DNA and semen. Here, too, the evidentiary added values remains unclear. During their interviews, both A and Assange have confirmed that they noticed and commented on this stain shortly after sexual intercourse, but did not give it any importance, and so did not pursue the matter further, as the police know very well the decisive question of whether the condom was ripped intentionally or accidentally cannot be clarified by this analysis either. It is therefore no coincidence that Gellin did not request the laboratory to conduct this analysis until six months after the alleged events on 1 March of 2011. The trigger for the belated request must have been that, one week earlier, the Swedish extradition request for Assange had been approved by Westminster Magistrates Court in London. Depending on whether the High Court would accept to hear Assange's appeal, his eminent extradition to Sweden had become a realistic possibility. This had abruptly increased the pressure on Prosecutor Marianne Nye. Suddenly she might have now to present sufficient evidence to the court in support of an indictment of Assange failing which he would have to be released and cleared of all allegations. As a result, the police and prosecution authorities start scrambling for circumstantial and technical elements which could help to gloss over the precarious lack of prosecutable ev evidence in support of the official rape narrative. From a professional investigative perspective, the Swedish prosecutor must have been fully aware not only of the evidentiary irrelevance of all these laboratory tests, but also of the fact that, in reality, there had never been any prospect of a successful conviction. The only conceivable motivation for undertaking such pointless efforts is that this forensic hyperactivity was to serve as a smokescreen to persuade the judges and the public that a serious criminal investigation was underway which required Assange's extradition, detention, and indictment. Let us recall that, regardless of whatever took place between Assange and the two women, in both cases his criminal liability depended entirely on factors that objectively could not be proved beyond reasonable doubt. In the case of S, the only decisive question was whether she had been asleep or awake at the first moment of sexual contact initiated by Assange. In the case of A, Assange's criminal culpability depended exclusively on whether, during sexual intercourse with A, he had ripped his condom during intentionally or accidentally. 
As soon as Assange had publicly denied these allegations in response to the Express and headlines, Chief Prosecutor Finney knew that a criminal investigation would be futile. In the absence of a confession from Assange, who despite his rumored promiscuity had no history of sexual offenses, it was objectively impossible to corroborate the decisive facts. Therefore, a criminal trial would inevitably result in an acquittal based on the benefit of the doubt, most likely followed by claims for reputational damages or even criminal complaints. Indeed, a related criminal complaint for the false accusation was filed the day after the Express and headlines on 22 of August 2010. In light of the given evidentiary circumstances, any reasonably experienced prosecutor would have immediately understood that the allegations reported by the police could not be successfully prosecuted. The fact that, nevertheless, the Swedish criminal investigation against Assange was being artificially kept alive by pointless investigative action and endless procrastination strongly suggests that the authorities were not pursuing justice in this case, but a completely different, purely political agenda. Indeed, for years, Sweden will cite the need to take a DNA sample from Assange as one of the main reasons why he cannot be questioned from London by phone or video link and must be extradited to Sweden at all costs. And yet, as early as 7 December 2010, Assange voluntarily gave to the British police a DNA sample which was then stored in the national DNA database and could be requested by Swedish authorities through mutual legal assistance at any time but Paul Close from the British Crown Prosecution Service in an email dated 25 January 2011 specifically advises Marianne Nye against obtaining a DNA sample in the United Kingdom he begins by stating the obvious I am not sure if this evidence is really critical Furthermore, he cautions that obtaining such evidence could have a greater propensity for harm or mischief by the defense than it would be than it would benefit the prosecution case. For the British, too, truth sorry, and justice do not seem to be a priority in this affair. And any potentially exculpatory evidence is framed as harm or mischief. It is not until Six years later, Marian Nye finally brings herself to take this step when Sweden's, Sweden's Supreme Court indicates its willingness to lift the arrest warrant against Assange on proportionality grounds due to lack of progress in the investigation. On 25th, sorry, on 15th of December, 2016, Sweden finally sends a mutual legal assistance request to the British Central Authority asking to compare the four Swedish DNA profiles with Assange's personal DNA profile stored in the British registry since December 7, 2010. Six years later. First comes from A's ripped condom, the second from the stain on A's bedsheet, the third from S's condom fragment, and the fourth from S's vaginal swab. There was a vaginal swab. The British carefully perused the Swedish supplemental letter of request along with a description of Assange's alleged offenses, but do not seem to grasp the investigative purpose of the Swedish request. They politely write back to the Swedish prosecutor asking for clarification. It would assist us if you could please send me a line setting out the relevance of this measure to the investigation. Marianne Nye gives the only response that is convincing from an investigative perspective, 
we seek a comparison of the crime stain profiles to find out whether the DNA on the broken condoms is from Julian Assange. These pieces of evidence are of importance for the trustworthy of wit sorry for the trustworthy witnesses. So it is purportedly about clarifying the credibility of these two women as witnesses. In her public statements, of course, Marianne Nye never even hinted that the credibility of A and S could be in doubt. This would not only have undermined the, the official narrative of Assange, the rapist, but would also have disingenuous given been disingenuous given that this entire narrative had originally been imposed on A and S against their wills. On 30th of January 2017, the test results arrive by mail from the United Kingdom. The DNA profile found on A's bedsheet matches Assange's profile stored in the British DNA database. However, the two DNA profiles found on the two damaged condoms and the one taken from the vaginal swab are not mentioned, implying that none of these three could be successfully matched with Assange's DNA profile. The wording of the message is final and does not suggest any further results may be expected. The accompanying official report by the British authorities, dated 2nd February 2017, is almost entirely redacted, but the structure of the text shows that four different points or subpoints are being discussed, likely corresponding to the four requested profile checks. Of these four points, only one seems to be illustrated in detail with tables and figures. The annexed search results are also fully redacted but seem to refer to only one of the profiles under examination. The fact that Assange's DNA profile was confirmed in a stain, which both he and A ex had expressly mentioned in police interviews as resulting from their intercourse, can hardly be regarded as revelatory. The same would have to be said if the three other profiles taken from the two condoms and the vaginal swab also match that of Assange. The fact that this may not be the case in turn raises questions that cannot be resolved without access to the unredacted laboratory results. In any case, based on the available evidence, the endless shadow boxing of the Swedish authorities around DNA profiles and condoms appear to be nothing but a masquerade to cover up the obvious lack of prosecutable evidence for their allegations of sexual misconduct against Assange. Holy mackerel. I am still going to be in Chapter 6 tomorrow. Holy stooly. Um, I have to end it there. It's been 42 minutes. Does anybody want to jump up here and, and say anything towards the uh, towards the content before, <laughs> before I get out of here? It's the longest chapter ever. I mean, it's longer than one of the chapters I read for like over two hours that was in... Um, willful blindness so um, unless anyone has anything to say Jonathan I'll just go to your comments here ongoing for the next five years <laughs> you weren't lying because <laughs> we covered the span of the investigation starting 2010 this is just the DNA analysis from these these scraped up condoms uh, and this is so unbelievable uh, through 2017 so that's that's a span of like almost seven years in the meantime this poor man is like you know 
He's huddled up in the in the Ecuadorian embassy running from the Swedes. It's just insane. This is this is why we have a statute in the United States that says that we're guaranteed access to a speedy trial, but for some reason that's just been frittered away. So much is to be done. There's so much to do. Why is there so much to do with law? Anyways, Miranda, glad to see you and your brown dog. And um, with that, I'm glad that um, I've had your attending ear here today. Um, we will return tomorrow with more of this reading. Uh, again, you know, very happy to get to early voting on the 24th here in Texas. I wish you well. This has been The Unsanctioned Citizen. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call-in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com. Don't sleep with Julian Assange.